The Rod and Staff podcast comes out of the host's passion for Christ and his church. It exists to encourage a deeper engagement with issues that pertain to doctrine and life. Check us out at rodandstaff.org. And we are live from the Doctrine for Life conference. My name is Matt Rosenblum, and I am the co-host of the Back to the Reformation podcast. And I am here with my new co-host today, and that is... Roger Beramian from the Rod and Staff podcast. It's great to be here, you guys. We are here with Dr. Michael Matosian. He is one of our plenary speakers. It's great to have you here, Mike. Thank you. Very good to be here and... uh appreciate the opportunity. So, Raj, what are we going to talk about today? Well, we have a variety of different things we're going to talk about, and you may notice the name is very familiar to those who listen to our podcast. We have another Matosian with us, so we're going to... You're in trouble now. Yeah, we're going to find out a lot about Jason on this podcast. We got a few questions about that, so... (laughs) So, Michael, give us the inside scoop about your brother. Well, <laughs> where, where does one begin? <laughs> were you the loving older brother, or were you the one who beat your little brother up? Well, there, mm-hmm. there's a bit of an age gap, so if I ever uh, beat him, I would have probably been sent to prison. So uh, wow. <laughs> it would have been considered child abuse or something. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, I... I um, I'd like to think I was the loving older brother, but I'm certain that wasn't always true. Uh, uh, if I believe in sin, I believe that uh, I uh, certainly couldn't have always been that way. Uh, but uh, Jason and I uh, have had a lot of similar interests, uh, and when he was, uh, well, considerably younger, uh, I was uh, pressing him. I can't remember if I was already in seminary or not. I kept pressing him to study Hebrew and become an Old Testament scholar. He didn't listen to me. Mm-hmm. And it was like, Jason, it was like being under the covenant of works, right? With your brother. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so thanks for being here, Mike. And we're, we're going to talk to Mike today a little bit about his, um, his journey to the Reformation, where he started. And we're going to talk about our, our journey as well and, and how Reformed theology affected, how, how it has affected our lives. And we're just going to have an ongoing conversation here. And um, Michael, first of all, tell us a little, bit, a little bit about where you came from, where you started in your Christian life, and where you are now. Well, I uh, grew up in a Christian home. Uh, and of course, many of you know our family. So dad, you'll know, is a, a pastor as well. A grandfather was an elder in the church and so on. So grew up in a Christian home and environment. Um, uh, was taught the Word of God, was taught the Gospel from uh, a young age. Uh, I uh, made, uh, uh, at least at home, a kind of profession of faith from a very young age, but I don't think there was a whole lot of uh, fruit to, to show for it, consider the spankings I got. Um, <laughs> but but uh, in time, uh, in God's uh, providence, in my uh, uh, teen years, uh, certain things uh, uh, that I experienced, uh, he used to impress upon me you know, both my own uh, wretchedness and uh, his grace, what truly is the gospel. Um, and uh, so I was uh, probably about uh, 15 uh, when I, uh, what I consider when I genuinely can say I came to faith in the Lord. 
Uh, at the same time, simultaneously, uh, I, uh, uh, I'll call it experience, but I just began to have a conviction of a, of a sense of call to the ministry. So already at age 15, that was the direction I, I wanted to head. So I, uh, you know, make the long story short, and you can follow up with any questions you want. I uh, you know, went off eventually, well, I didn't really go off because I lived at home, but I went to college, and uh, uh, in that time, as I, my own theological convictions were developing, you know, I, I ended up in uh, uh, leaving the uh, church where I grew up. Of course, I, mean, I was getting to the age where you're going to be moving on and moving away anyway, uh, but I uh, transitioned into the reform circles uh, and uh, 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 continued uh, in that path. So. Okay. So tell us a little bit about your childhood. I'm just kidding. <laughs> and so... What kind of a theological upbringing did you have? I mean, you weren't always Reformed. Correct. So what would that entail? Uh, I would describe it, I think uh, uh, a good description is um, a, a, uh, uh, a conservative, biblically focused uh, evangelicalism. Uh, the, the, unfortunately, to speak of evangelicals and evangelicalism in 2022 doesn't mean the same thing it meant when I was a little kid. Things have changed yep. uh, big time. So uh, that's why I want to use the language of conservative. The Bible was the word of God. One of the things I value greatly, uh, and if, for those of you who are interested, the church that I grew up in where dad at the time was pastors, the uh, Armenian uh, Brotherhood Bible Church in Pasadena. And I'm very grateful because one of the things they did very well was make sure we learned the Bible. So uh, we didn't necessarily uh, um, think in doctrinal categories to the extent that, let's say, in the Reformed tradition we do, but we were taught, here is God's word, and I, I think I can say that you know, we were taught, you need Christ, that's the only hope you have, and so on. So that was the kind of background I came from, uh, more uh, Arminian, uh, with a healthy dose of dispensationalism uh, in the mix as well. Wait a second. So Ar Arminian, not Armenian, okay? <laughs> we don't want to offend anybody here, right? Well, as, as, as Dad once said when I was about 10, and we had guests at uh, the dining room table after, uh, we had a guest preacher that day, and they came to our home for lunch. And I, I will never forget, because I didn't really quite know what it meant yet at the time, I remember him saying, well, we are both Armenian and Arminian. <laughs> so my own change, you see, uh, Dad and I were talking yesterday. Yeah. He said, you got to tell them you were being a teenage rebel by going reformed. Uh, so <laughs> uh, so uh, uh, we, we were both ethnically Armenian and theologically, in the, broadly speaking, in the Arminian uh, camp. So what, what influences did you have that started leading you out of that? What were maybe some authors or books back then you were yeah. reading or with friends? So that's a very, very good question. Um, uh, and, and I don't want to be flippant about this because it actually was not the reading of any uh, theological books mm -hmm. that brought me to Reformed convictions. Uh, I had, I can't really remember clearly, but I was probably eight or ten years old 
no more than 12, but I'm pretty sure it was before that, when I started wondering about the whole idea of election, I mean, we were taught God chose Israel. Uh, and so, you know, I kind of grew up scared to death. God, has he chosen me? You chose Israel, but what about me? At 10 uh, years old. Yes. Like you're an odd child. I was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm probably still odd in some ways. Um, so wow. I, I was wondering about that. And, you know, I was aware of Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hand, hands of an angry God. And uh, we, we would read some of that literature in school. Uh, and so I had an awareness of these questions. And, you know, we were taught differently. That was explained to us in other ways. And, and so as I got a little bit older and the questions popped up again in my mind and I was thinking about them, uh, I, I went to one of the things I have been very grateful for. Dad always said, here's my library. Read any time you, know, you want. And I was also grateful that probably 50% or more of his books were all from uh, reformed authors. Um, I still have his copy. He doesn't maybe remember this. He's here. Uh, that I still have his copy of Charles Hodge's Systematic Theology, uh, as well as his copy of Calvin's Institutes. I've uh, <laughs> enjoyed them, and I, they're still on my shelves and, and so on. Uh, so I, I, I began to read what was in his library, and I picked certain commentaries that were more in the Arminian uh, tradition. So they, they gave me some peace as I read the explanation. Okay, oh, all right, I'm, I'm, everything's fine, right? But that, that question never left me. It kept needling me. And in college, I can't remember what year now, if it was freshman or sophomore year, I determined that, okay, this year I'm going to read straight through the Bible and whatever it says, I'm going to take it as literally as possible and simply believe it. By the end of that year, without knowing it, I had come to uh, very reformed conclusions, you know, maybe not a full-orbed reformed theology, but very reformed conclusions, and I thought I was alone in the world. Uh, nobody believes this anymore. Nobody likes Calvin or Calvinism. And just at that moment, in God's providence, he brought uh, three different friends into my life uh, that... Um, one was genuinely reformed. I was a Presbyterian. His dad was a Presbyterian minister. The other two, I won't say what their uh, background was now, but they came from churches that sort of get categorized as reformed broadly, but I, I couldn't agree with that by definition, not to be mean in any way. But they were, you know, they believed in, in election and the, and the doctrines of grace. And I went, wow, somebody else actually believes that. And I was then introduced to the whole world of, Presbyterian and Reformed churches, uh, Westminster Seminary, and so on. You went to Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, correct? Yes, that's correct. And what led you to go to seminary? Uh, well, as I was saying a little bit ago, uh, at age 15, when I came to that point where I was embracing the faith genuinely for myself, I, at the same time, very immediately, frankly, sensed a call to ministry. Uh, I, initially, I thought that I would be in, in pastoral ministry, which is what I am in, uh, but then I, I developed interests in, in scholarship, and I thought, oh, maybe I will uh, pursue something in the realm of apologetics. Uh, at the time, uh, 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 Walter Martin was still alive. He was the, the Bible answer man, mm -hmm. uh, and I used to listen to him mm -hmm. almost every day really appreciated his work 
in the sense of apologetics, and, and so that was, be, was becoming more and more uh, my vision of what I wanted to do. Uh, eventually, and I'm not going to go through all that, I, I settled on systematics, became my real uh, love, uh, just because of the way my brain works. But um, anyhow, I, I sensed a call early on, and uh, as I was looking to, well, where would I go to school? I was considering seminaries here in Southern California, uh, but I knew I planned to go on for graduate studies. And back then, there was sort of this idea that, you know, if you go uh, to Westminster in Philadelphia, they offered a, a THM as well. They actually offered through doctoral studies if you wanted. It, it had this sort of more academic feel and flavor. That was only in theory, mind you. I mean, that's, that, that's sort of your uh, on-the-ground, uh, you know, uh, r rumors, let's say. Uh, versus if you went to Westminster and Escondido, they were more pastorally focused and, and uh, so on. So I chose to go there. But I also had always wanted to live on the East Coast, so it was an excuse to move back <laughs> East for a while. Uh, and uh, I, I definitely, glad I did it, I enjoyed it. There, there are good things and bad things about any seminary you choose, but that's how I ended up uh, in Philadelphia. So with the older brother, uh, what influence did you have on your younger brothers, especially Jason with you know, theology, was, were there conversations, or did you all come to a different understanding as you were, uh, you know, training and, and right. going different directions? Uh, we have certainly had many, many discussions over the years, uh, and uh, I, you know, you'll have to ask him to what extent uh, my conversations with him have formed or, or, or molded his thinking. Uh, but we certainly did talk about things, and we have uh, areas where we uh, we have our differences. You know, I'm a Presbyterian; he's more Reformed Baptist uh, in uh, his thinking, and uh, I don't hold that against him. And uh, hopefully, yeah. he doesn't hold my <laughs> Presbyterianism against me. Yeah. He, you're you're right, and he's wrong. I mean, no, sorry. <laughs> sorry, we got yeah. it right here. <laughs> Great. Well, I think thanks. Thank you for that, Mike. You know, I think a lot of us, you know, have gone through this journey ourselves. Um, mine was roughly, I think, about five years ago. I think Oneg and I kind of went through this at the same time, believe it or not, right? Um, I think it was kind of my fault, you know, starting to ask questions and share certain things with him. And I don't know about you, Mike, but the topic of assurance has come up in this conference. Um, and Lee spoke about it. I know you have mentioned it. And for me, assurance was always something that we arrived at before I was reformed. It's something that you work towards to, to basically that your works, how, many, how much fruit you were producing. If you looked at your fruit um, and if you were producing a lot, then you have assurance. Like we've always looked at the book of 1 John kind of as a test. There are a bunch of tests that you meet, mm -hmm. and if you meet those criteria, then you're a Christian. Then you can say you're a Christian. And what I found out is that it's not something that we arrive at, but it's the, that the emphasis in Reformed theology is that assurance is our starting point that we jettison or our platform to jump off of to obey Christ. It's our, it's, our, it's, right, it's our motivation to obey Christ, our union with Christ. That is, so assurance is at the beginning, it's the foundation of our Christian life, not the end. 
and what would you add to that? Do you do you agree with that? Yeah, yeah I, I I definitely uh, assurance uh, is I, in some ways at least the experience of assurance I found more difficult in in my upbringing the more mm -hmm. Armenian context uh, the, because there was always a sense of wait a minute am I in or am I out at the moment. And uh, you know they may not intend it that way, so I, I want to be fair to, to those who think that way. But in practice, that was definitely the effect it had on me. And so, uh, as I came more and more to reformed conclusions and reformed circles, it did a great deal for that sense of assurance. When I began to understand that the assurance is based on the promise, not on my attainment level. Um, I think, you know, earlier in the conference, Dr. Irons was making that point, the, the practical syllogism, you know, if I have fruit, therefore, mm -hmm. I, I'm, you know, I, I'm on the right mm -hmm. path. But that's only useful if you understand it in the context of the, the totality of grace, that it's all of grace. Uh, otherwise, it becomes a, a dangerous thing, because then you never know, do I have enough works? Do I have enough fruit? Right. And so on. So for me, certainly coming into reform circles, that that was to reform convictions was very, very helpful to see that it's Christ and God's promise. That's my assurance, not how good or bad I am today. Uh, again, obviously, we want to live good. We're, we're not disputing that, but we recognize that tension in us, mm -hmm. the struggle that we have. And so we need to keep coming back to that promise. And so for me, that was very, if I, uh, don't mean to make a pun here, but that was very reassuring. Yeah, it, before I go on, and Roger, let you uh, talk and jump in, I wanted to state something that when I refer to my crisis of assurance or dealing with the issue of assurance, I'm not speaking of just coming from an Arminian background, but this was actually during the, the context of a Calvinistic background, especially under what we call Lordship Salvation. And I call, you know, that's more of a, not a Reformed background, but what I like to call Calvangelical background, right? The broader Calvinistic right. predestinarians. And under Lordship Salvation, of course, there is the lack of distinction of the law gospel. There's right. a confusion in what leads to what Mike Horton calls the gospel, right? The mixing of the two. And because of this lack of distinction or no distinction, I think this really ends up getting you in a bind. And so the gospel becomes the new law. It's not something that sets you free, but it's something that brings you under bondage again. Right. right? And therefore, you're very discouraged because you're always looking inward, you're navel-gazing. And I think that was the fact of my own life, and I think the fact of many others as well, like probably for you, Roger, as well. And so when you have this law-gospel distinction that arises from covenant theology, it just sets you free. And we obey now out of gratitude. It's not something that we have to do that's... Um, that we feel that God, that we're under the eye, the, the evil eye of God all the time, that he's looking right. out to get us and that he is our heavenly father. Um, so I think that's where I'm coming from with that. And I think that's how important reform theology is, at least to me, and I know for a lot of other people as well, because I, I think it's true. I think it's biblical. Anyway, Roger. Yeah, I think for me, a lot of it uh, has to do with different 
uh, topics of thinking, you know, assurance uh, definitely connected to it. Uh, but thinking about sanctification, uh, I went to a very dispensational school for my MDiv and, and learned one framework. But I left there uh, with the, a couple questions. The questions of why should I obey and not just the simple answer God tells you to obey. But why do I want to obey? So the motives of the heart, but also how do I deal with my remaining sin without this answer of you're not saved if you still struggle with a particular sin? And so those questions led me down a path of, of struggling for many years and starting to read many different authors. And it led me to a lot of Presbyterian authors, a lot of Westminster coming authors. over to the dark side, are you? <laughs> I won't take the final uh, <laughs> dip into the pool of the dark side, but it was a lot of the Reformed thinkers and how they dealt with sanctification. And then when I started working on my next seminary degree, that became a central focus of how do I deal with my remaining sin? And that was connected to assurance because your struggle with sin is going to affect how you feel uh, of your relationship with God. Absolutely. So yeah. authors like Jerry Bridges, who, who brought down great theology on a level for anybody to understand, talked about it, and then going into just so many authors and having my questions answered of the struggle with sin is not a sign that you're not saved. That's actually a good sign. Right. And thinking that you're going to overcome every single struggle is not the right biblical idea. The scriptures don't teach that we're supposed to overcome every single thing and have perfection here. It talks about a progression. It talks about a struggle and at times a regression. And that doesn't mean you're not secure in Christ. So, uh, you know, all these topics, as I've talked with Jason on the podcast at times, we've gone through this and gone through looking at now how do the confessions talk about this. We, we didn't have the confessions in our seminary experience. We were deprived of those great uh, statements that help us think through how do we uh, deal with uh, the, the sin that we have, assurance and all that. So, uh, and in a nutshell, that's, that's been kind of my thought process and where I've been um, in this conversation. Yeah. I think what you're saying about sanctification, one of the things that really helped me was, helped me to refocus, if you will, on the gospel and the centrality of grace to all of salvation was uh, counseling methodologies that I saw in action mm -hmm. that basically said, okay, you're saved by the gospel, but now you got to get sanctified mm -hmm. by being, being beat over the head with the law. Yeah. I sat in counseling sessions where I'd sent a parishioner to receive counseling, and they would ask me to come in sometimes as the pastor. And I, I watched and listened as the counselor basically just almost yelled at this guy for the sins that he had been involved with as though that's going to change his heart. Yeah. Uh, and and um, that, that's what really brought out for me that the importance of understanding both the law-gospel distinction, but how it is then that actually it's the gospel that sanctifies. Amen. It doesn't just bring us forgiveness and justification. It actually comes and it is 
the power that changes. You know, when Paul mm -hmm. says uh, in Romans 1 that the gospel is, is God's power unto salvation, I think we need to see that language in the broadest possible sense, uh, that it involves everything from justification to glorification, including our sanctification. Yeah, and that's a lot of what, you know, I studied in counseling is just that, how do we counsel people? And, and there is the, the simple model of you're just a sinner, so you just need to repent of your sin, right. not seeing us also as sufferers. And sin is a, a, a part of suffering mm -hmm. on this side of eternity too. But losing our identity in Christ, that we're saints who sin, we're saints who suffer, and how are we going to gently deal with those? Galatians 6, you gently restore. The grace of God uh, leads yep. us to repentance, not the wrath of God. Yep. It may scare you, but that's not true change. That's starting that's right. from a standpoint of fear and not faith. Yeah. And so that has, has been, you know, the methodology and how we relate to people with their sin yes. is so important. And I find that that has been growing as I've, you know, been thinking and uh, reading so much about that and how God's grace needs to be the central focus, not our self-improvement or self. Yes. We often start with the grace of God, yes, Jesus has forgiven my sin. Yes, he, he will change me. But then all of a sudden we take the focus off of Christ and we put it on ourselves. And we're so introspective of ourselves, we forget Christ. Yeah. And we Amen. lose sight of the power yes. of the vine, of where all of that uh, power to change is going to come from. Yes. And even the motivation, grace to change, or I'm sorry, gratitude not guilt, yeah. is lost in, in that process. You're such an antinomian, man. Sorry. You know, <laughs> just grace, grace, grace. Yeah, too what much the, grace. What about the law? Good for the soul. It'll make you want <laughs> to obey God instead of have to. That, that's amen. Jerry Bridges' thing. He says, yeah. you go from, I have to obey God, to I want to obey God. Yes, and man. only the grace of God can change your heart to see that and to want to obey because of what he's done for you, not to earn his favor or earn something from him. Yeah. That the gospel is for Christians as well. Yeah. Is that we often so, think it's something that we get at the beginning to get in, but we just leave it aside, right? Mm -hmm. And then the rest of it is just like a bunch of spiritual disciplines that we need to do. Something that I kind of want to talk about right now is what is sanctification? And this is something that's confusing to a lot of us. I think a lot of people teach on sanctification, but they don't really know what sanctification is. When we talk about sanctification, it's God setting us apart, right? And the thing is, is that we often think that sanctification is something that we do. We often hear about, we often hear pursue sanctification, right? Well, we don't pursue sanctification. We pursue holiness. And the only reason that we're pursuing holiness is because God is sanctifying us. That's mm -hmm. the correct way to view it, I think, right? Um, we often think of a, doing spiritual disciplines. We're told to do a certain amount of spiritual disciplines, and we do them, and that will somehow trigger God to sanctify us. And that's not how it is at all. I think the, the, the growth is a fruit of sanctification, that repentance is a fruit of sanctification. What do you I, think about I think, that? I think it's important to a couple, of, a couple of thoughts. One, when we think of sanctification, uh, when you look at the ways in which it is laid out for us in Scripture, uh, you know, my mind ordinarily, immediately, or first of all, goes to 
Paul's uh, discussion of the fruit of the Spirit. So fruit is what? It's something that naturally is born by a tree. If the tree is healthy, if it's fed, it has, it has what it needs, its nourishment and the water. Uh, unlike here in California, we're out, where you're almost out of water. Um, uh, you, you know, there, there will be a growth of the tree. Not only will the tree grow, though, now it will begin to give good fruit. Uh, and, and so I think we need to see it that way. At the same time, there are places like in uh, uh, Second Peter 1, where Peter will say, you know, add this to that mm-hmm. characteristic, add this. So now you're going, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm supposed to do this myself. Well, I, I think there's there are two things happening there. Paul is focused on the, the source and the power of where that comes from. Peter is looking at it a little more, if you will, practically, existentially, our experience. And he's reminding us there, here's what you should look like if you're in Christ. And so make sure you're adding these characteristics, not because we have the power to add it ourselves, but because the Lord is at work. So one is from behind the curtain, the other is in front of the curtain, let's just say. That, that, that could, would be a way of uh, putting analogy. it, sure. Yeah, yeah. I had another thought to add, but I've forgotten what it was Sorry, now. So. No, 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 yeah. I, I'd already forgotten it before you said that. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh. so, but that to me has been something that's really important, talking about with Roger talking about sanctification, is that sanctification is monergistic. In other words, it's still grace alone. It's grace alone from the beginning to the end. It's, it doesn't leave off all of a sudden when, after justification, right? right. Well, absolutely, and I remembered my thought, and it fits along those lines. Here, here's the thing. It's all of, all of God. It's all from Him. It's all of Christ. It's all the work of the Spirit. Uh, the question is, where is the Spirit at work? How do we encounter that work? Uh, This is a little bit of a plug, if you will, for our talks this afternoon, because we're going to be thinking about this. Is we need to be where the Spirit is. And he's found where? In the ordinary means of grace. We find him uh, in the scripture. He uses the word to change us. Psalm 1, the one who will be like that strong, firmly uh, planted tree with the streams of water, is the one who meditates upon the Word of God day and night. And I understand the language there is the law, but you need to see it in the sense of, of God's instruction and so on. And so the one who is imbibing it, living in it, uh, drinking it and eating it, uh, listening to it taught and preached, that's where the Spirit works. It's very simple, ordinary means. He said, this is how I do it. Uh, so we need to be in the Word, and then related to that in their own distinct sense, uh, the sacraments that he uses to uh, strengthen our faith and assure us, and so on. For those who are not familiar with this type of language, Mike, what, what do you mean by means of grace? A means of grace is a, a sort of our shorthand to talk about how God, uh, if you will, brings his grace to us in this life. So, you know, it comes through the Word. That's where it's delivered to us. His Word goes forth. It doesn't return to Him empty. Uh, The sacraments, uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper, uh, they are forms of God coming to us and saying, here's my grace. Now, we're going to talk about this in our uh, afternoon conference. It's not as though there's uh, uh, some inherent power to the water that's poured on someone or in the 
uh, cup and in the bread that we eat in the Lord's Supper, but in the entire actions taking place, God is the one who is coming to us from outside to say, here's the gospel, here's Jesus, that's what you need. And so he works in us uh, through these means. So that's the idea in, in brief of means of grace, word of God and the sacraments, things that come from outside that God has appointed ordinary, plain, simple ways to bring the fullness of his grace to us. We often think that our quiet time in the Word is the most important time of all, right? But it seems that we forget what the primary means of grace, Word and sacrament, right. are the most important right, yeah. in your life. Well, yeah, I mean, quiet time is important. I never want to say don't, don't mm -hmm. get up and be in the Word and spend sure. time in prayer. I, I, what I do encourage people to think about is think of it as my uh, daily uh, personal time of worship. Uh, the quiet time language is a very American way of, of thinking and talking. Uh, and I believe, uh, personally, I'm convinced that it flows out of our rather uh, extreme at times American individualism. Uh, it's all about, you know, me and God, me and Jesus. Very, very, what can dangerously become self-focused. Uh, so if you think of it instead as my daily time of worshiping God, it's not so much about a quiet time where something happens. Mm -hmm. It's that, hey, I, I'm going to uh, have a prayer. Maybe, uh, I, I used to do this, I, I encourage you to think about this, uh, is carry some kind of songbook or hymnal in your car. I used to, uh, uh, when I'd get to campus, I did this especially when I was in grad school, I'd arrive very early in the morning, park the car. Before I got out, I'd grab, I kept a hymnal in the car, I'd open a hymn and I would sing. It was to set myself, and hopefully nobody heard me because that would be pretty awful. That was supposed to be, that was supposed to be just Jesus and me there. Um, nobody else listened. But it, it's, it's a form of worship that gets the focus off of us and onto the Lord. And so we need those times ourselves in the Word and worshiping the God, uh, God privately. Uh, but uh, when we look at, uh, at the Word of God, it, it puts an accent on... Uh, Romans 10 that I talked about last night, that it's through the preaching of the word that he creates that faith uh, within us. And so I, I always want to put an accent on that. And there's another important part of that. It's, it's the dynamic of the togetherness. There's a lot more going on. When we gather for worship, uh, there's a sense in which, as Calvin described, that we are lifted up into heaven in that moment. The temple of the Holy Spirit is made visible when the people gather together. It's not the building. We can be outside in the middle of the street. But when the people are gathered, there's a distinctive and special sense in which God, Father, Son, and Spirit comes there to meet with His people. And so when the Word is preached there, the Word is read there, the sacraments are administered, the Lord is at work uh, in us. And there's the fellowship there too, right? The one anothering of reminding each other of the truth, reminding each other of the gospel, and that, that shaping, that influence that we have after yes. we have worshipped as one that helps us in our growth. So a hymnal, huh? In our, in our car. Or whatever, whatever is form of song. Maybe you're, you memorize them. That's fine too. Is like Chris Tomlin or a Hill song, okay? Or is that is that like? That's a conversation for another day. Come on, man. Regulative principle, I guess. 
<laughs> well, not in the car, not right? Not in the car necessarily. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, anyway. I, don't, I, I don't recommend putting a little idol up to worship in the car. <laughs> go ahead, Roger. Oh, no. no go ahead. Okay. Well, I think we're about that time right now. I think we're coming to a close here. Um, anything else you would like to ask Pastor Matosian, Roger, or... I don't know. Are you available sometimes? We might uh, have a replacement for Jason on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Jason. I had to. I had to. I no, thank you. Thank you. That's oh, very helpful were. to to hear your heart and to hear, uh, you know, the same same ideas that we're trying to think through here, and and how how. Uh, there's unity in that. Even though there's differences in other ways we practice, there are sure, unities absolutely. around Amen. those absolutely. important topics yeah. that affect our day-to-day lives. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, so and we, we appreciate here. your time, and thank you for putting up with me and Roger. <laughs> yeah, sorry for that. <laughs> Not sorry <at> to bear. <laughs> all right, well, you have been listening to another episode of the Back to the Reformation podcast. And Rod and Staff podcast. And we hope you join us next time. See ya. If you enjoyed this episode of the Rod and Staff podcast, please subscribe and share with others. For more information or to contact the host with questions or comments, please send email correspondence to feedback at rodnstaff.org. That is feedback at rod, the letter N, staff.org.